Dr. Stephen Fix. Uh, Stephen and I go way back to when he was a student at Westminster Seminary in California, and I was just a faculty kid uh, trying to get attention from seminary students. Uh, and Stephen was coming to us from Grove City College, and I still remember my dad saying, well, boy, we're getting a lot of good students from this Grove City College place. I should, I should check that out. Um, but finishing at uh, Westminster, he ended up back here studying at Catholic University and ministering at, uh, at uh, a Reformed Presbyterian Church in Bowie. And uh, Stephen recently finished his dissertation, which I'm very, I was very excited about, on, on the ventive suffix. Um, for those of you who remember Jesus' words, that not a jot or a tittle will pass away from, uh, from God's law. Well, Stephen is an expert in these weird little vowels or strange nuns or even you know, uh, little jots uh, that most of us, people like me, tell our introduction Hebrew students, we don't really know what these mean. Um, so Stephen has a heart for figuring out all the details of God's law and how biblical Hebrew works, and also a heart for ministry and ministering. So we're very happy to hear from him, and, hear, and he's also participated in a lot of Reformation Day services, so it's wonderful that he gets to bring God's word to us this evening. Stephen, come bring the word. It's a privilege to be with you here after a number of years coming and being part of this service and participating at times. Um, I'm keenly aware that um, there are many, uh, even some in this room who I've uh, heard from this pulpit bring God's word, and um, I don't think I'm up here necessarily because I'm so qualified to do so. Um, a few weeks ago, I heard that Jamie uh, was having a little bit of trouble lining up a speaker, and so I texted him, hey, Jamie, I heard you're having a little difficulty finding a speaker. Uh, any way I can help? And he said, sure, you want to come? <laughs> you want to be our speaker? And I said, no, no, not that. I had a list of names, and I mentioned them to him, and he said, I've checked with most of those. They said, call me back next year. So I felt sure I could do better, and I uh, got in touch with my little list of names and contacts, and each one said, uh, call me back next year. So I humbly had to come back to Jamie and say, all right, uh, I guess the only way I can help is by bringing God's word. So here I am. Uh, but uh, it's a privilege and a pleasure for me to bring God's word tonight. And for that, I wanted us to turn to Psalm 19. It was interesting in, in talking to Jamie about tonight, uh, I had been in my own devotions of reading through Psalm 19, and it struck me how appropriate it, it is for capturing the heart of the Reformation. So I thought it would be appropriate for us to look at it tonight. If you uh, don't have a Bible, uh, Psalm 19 is on, the, in the Pew Bibles, it's on page 456. So if you would turn with me to Psalm 19, let us now give careful attention as God speaks to us through his word. To the choir master, a Psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden 
from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Ends the reading of God's word. Let's go before him in prayer and ask his blessing on our time as we think on it further. Heavenly Father, we do ask you to enable these words of the psalm to come alive in our hearts and our minds as we reflect on them tonight. Lord, even as this psalm declares the wonder of your law, your word, your commandments, it's speaking of itself. We pray that we would delight in this, your word, from Psalm 19 tonight, that it would be to us revival of the soul, that it would be to us refreshing of our hearts, that it would be to us sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. May we rejoice in it, and may we rejoice ultimately in your glory that it displays, and in Christ who it proclaims to us. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, year after year, as we gather for this service, it's a real privilege to gather as churches who share a similar heritage, the heritage of the Reformation begun 505 years ago, right? Tomorrow in 1517, usually the date we peg to it, the date when Luther nailed those 95 theses to the wall of the church at Wittenberg. And as I was reflecting on uh, what this service is all about, we, we gather and we do what is appropriate for reform, Reformed churches who delight in our Reformed heritage. We gather, not for a lecture, not for a talk, we gather for worship, to come around uh, one another and to come around God's word and to glory in God who is a glorious God. The Reformation really, in many ways, recovered that centrality that is of God's glory, that's captured in that sola, soli deo gloria, to God alone be glory. In the face of the Pope's claims to a form of ultimate power over the church, even despite the papacy's corruption, the reformers came and said, no, soli deo gloria, right? In the face of a justification that was confused, mingled with some works, so that the words from Ephesians that say it's without works so that no man may boast were coming untrue. It was mingled with works that men were boasting in themselves. And in the face of that, the Reformation and the Reformers came and said, no, solely Deo Gloria. In the face of worship where created things 
were being venerated more and more and where human beings were taking more of a center of space and focus in the worship of God's people rather than the holy glory of God being front and center, the Reformation came and said, no, soli deo gloria. And that message of the centrality and the ultimate glory of God is reflected here in Psalm 19. It was the focus of the Reformation and it is the focus of this psalm, the glory of God. John Calvin in his commentary on uh, this text says that the purpose of this psalm is to encourage the faithful to contemplate what? The glory of God. And so as you look at this psalm, I want to unpack it by asking the question, how, how does this psalm lead us to contemplate God's glory? What does it teach us about the glory of God? And I would argue it teaches us three things in its three sections. Three truths here are shown to us of, about God's glory. First of all, that God's glory is communicated by the world. That's the first point. Second of all, God's glory is clarified by his word the second point. And third, and finally, God's glory calls us to worship. So communicated by the word, clar clarified by his word, and calling us to worship. First of all, the glory of God, as it's revealed in this psalm, is shown to be communicated in the world. This is how the psalm begins, isn't it? The heavens declare, verse one, the heavens declare, what? The glory of God. And the sky above, or if you have your ESV and you see the little footnote, right? Uh, the expanse or the firmament, what does it do? It proclaims his handiwork. Literally, it is the work of his hands. This uh, word for the sky above is probably referring to the way the ancient Israelites conceived or of the world, or at least spoke about the world. It's not necessarily clear that they believed that this is exactly how the world was, but they recognized that as we look out at the world, it kind of comes to us as flat land, uh, a sky above that sometimes leaks water through it, and uh, therefore there must be water above, and so there was this conception that the sky is more of a solid dome covering us, that holds back the water, that has windows that allow the water to come through, and, and a dome on which the lights of heaven are hung, just like a roof like we have in here with lights hanging in it, um, some windows hopefully that won't get open during a rainstorm. And the psalmist says all of this is declaring or, or speaking to us the glory of God. Now that raises the question, what is glory? If we're going to talk about God's glory, what does the word glory mean? What is it getting at? We talk about it a lot in church. Kids, you might especially wonder, yeah, but what do you mean by glory? So let me give you a suggestion for the way of thinking about it. Kids, you have a taste of what glory is. Now, the glory of human beings. You have the taste of it when you see the radiance that shines maybe on your own face or the face of the other team who wins the competition. You're going out of the basketball court, duking it out on the court, and the, the winning team walks off with the glow, don't they? A shine to their face, which is so irritating if it's the other team. But it's so glorious if it's you. And you walk off the court, and, and you hear someone delight in your glory. Wow, I can't believe you made that three-point shot. Or if you're 
in a foot race. You looked so strong running down the home stretch, winning gold. John Piper defines the glory of God as the radiance of the intrinsic worth and beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. See, our, our glory is when our true character, uh, the, the wonder of who we are, kind of comes to the surface and is recognized by other people. It's described as a, a weightiness in, it's the Hebrew word for it is a weightiness. In, in, uh, in Greek, it, it's, it's a, a shininess to glory. And so Piper's definition, I think, is good. The radiance of the intrinsic worth and beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. And isn't that what we see the psalm go on to say is reflected or is displayed or is communicated in the world around us, in God's created, in God's created world? Verse 2, day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge But notice it's communicated with a speech without words or words without sound, right? Verse 3, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Somehow, even though there's no words, no speech, their voice is heard as they declare the glory of God. Verse 4, their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. The glory of God communicated through the world is a glory that is being spoken without words everywhere in God's creation. And what does it tell us? Well, it tells us about the intrinsic worth and beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections, as John Piper's definition says. This is what Paul gets at in Romans 1.20 where he says God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And as the psalm continues, it gives us a little illustration, like any good sermon, right? And here the illustration of the way in which the world, God's world uh, communicates his glory is in the sun, right? And and what better illustration to bring? Because the sun is the the greater light, as Genesis 1 says, the greater light that rules the skies. And yet here, even he is likened to a servant, a, a created being, created by Almighty God. In them, in the heavens, in the end of verse 4, in them, he, God, has set a tent for the sun. He's made him a little house to live in. This glorious sun, and that he goes on to describe, right, who comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, running forth with joy, with radiance on his face. That's what a bridegroom leaving his chamber looks like. And like a strong man or a warrior, he runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The sun in the ancient world was often worshipped as a deity. Because we, we know its, its power and its glory and its grandeur. It's the source of all life. It's the source of all warmth. And they maybe didn't know about photosynthesis the way we do, but it's the source of truly all life through photosynthesis in the uh, vegetation that is the source of all living beings or all life for living beings on earth. 
And so the sun was worshipped as Shamash in Babylon, as Ra in Egypt. And yet here, the sun is simply a personified part of creation that runs around to do the Lord's bidding and is housed in a little tent made by Almighty God because the world communicates the glory of God. And this is what we, what we mean when we're talking about general revelation. This is a revelation that is accessible to every man and woman throughout all the earth. And this truth of the general revelation of God in creation was truly in many ways recovered in its significance in the Reformation. In the Middle Ages had a, a sort of a, a bifurcated reality. The Middle Ages had this sense that was communicated to God's people that there was, there was sacred activity on earth, and that was being part of the church, being a priest, being a monk, being a nun. And then there was the secular, the, the more ordinary things, being a tailor, being a cobbler, being a, a mother, a father, the everyday, the ordinary. And yet as the reformers went back to God's word, and including here in Psalm 19, they, they recognized that, no, there is... There is a glory being spoken by God about himself throughout creation. And this means that everything we do, in everything we do, even the most ordinary activities, we are attending in some way to God's glory as it's revealed throughout his world. This is where the reformers recognized a better doctrine of vocation. That there's not really such thing as a holy calling that is only the calling to be a pastor or an elder or a deacon. But that every Christian man and woman, every one of us in here, has a truly holy calling. Because we can glorify God in whatever he has called us to do. Even the most ordinary tasks on earth. Like 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we can do all to the glory of God. And what that means is that when you're doing the most ordinary things in life, you are doing glory work. Because as you're working with your hands, like here it says the heavens are God's handiwork, the work of his hands. As you are working with your hands, you are reflecting the image of your creator. When you're changing dirty diapers, you're doing glory work. When you are coding computer programs, raking weeds out of the yard, weeding a weedy bed, fixing a car, studying for an exam, cooking a meal, taking out the trash, filing your taxes, writing reports for your boss, cleaning the bathroom, learning new language. Whatever you do, as you are attending to this world, you are glorifying God. Any proper calling from God one that is not forbidden by God's word and is appropriate for you to take up is a way for you to participate with the sun and the moon and the stars to proclaim the glory of God without words as he communicates it in the world. That's the first point. The second point, the glory of God as we see it in the psalm is clarified by his word. You know, that last verse, uh, verse 6 uh, as it's describing the sun, it, it ends on this little phrase there at the end that if you think about it is actually somewhat or, or significantly ambiguous. It says about the sun, right? It goes on its circuit to, to the, you know, from one end of the heavens, circuit to the end of the heavens. 
and there is nothing hidden from its heat. That word for heat is also a word that is often used or translated as wrath. There is nothing hidden from the sun's wrath. So is the sun a good thing? Giving life to all that is, warming the world so that we can live uh, and not freeze to death and so that we can have life and abundance? Or, or is the sun a, a bad thing? Pouring forth God's wrath on his creation, scorching it to death. Maybe you've experienced the sun in, in both these ways. I remember years ago I was working on the hill and for me, the, the rough months in the D.C. area are January and February, you know, after all the fun of Thanksgiving and Christmas. Then you just get those dark, dark, long nights and short days. I'd get up in the morning, uh, head off to the hill. It was still dark, get to work, start work. Uh, at the end of the day, I'd get back in my car, get back on the metro, and it was already getting dark as I made my way home. Yet every now and then during those winter days, there's one day where the sun comes out. It's really bright. It's a great day where you can go and take your lunch and go sit on a park bench, sit in the full shining of the sun and warm yourself, get some vitamin D. It really is life-giving in the midst of winter, isn't it? But then I've also been on the beach in the summer and a 98-degree hot and humid day, and you go out there and there's really no way to hide yourself from the sun, even if you sit under an umbrella you'll get a sunburn and fry yourself if you don't lather on the sunscreen or get out of uh, the beach uh, more quickly. It seems like that kind of ambiguity of the sun's role in creation is, is what's introduced in that last phrase. Is the sun a bearer of life or a bearer of wrath? And it seems like that is what leads the psalmist then to say, you know, to, to really understand and have clarity on that question, on our relationship to Almighty God in His glory, we actually have to go somewhere other than general revelation, other than the world. We have to go to His Word where His glory is clarified for us. And there we see verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. When you're in the heat and the wrath of the sun, you need reviving, and that's what the law of the Lord is presented as. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are, is, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and more and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. These few verses here, verses 7 to 9 especially, are incredibly stylized poetry that is incredibly beautiful. I mean, you can see it come through as you read it. It's, it's very stylized, it's very clear. C.S. Lewis says of, of this poem, I, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. So it's worth us taking a moment to think about these verses that Lewis so delighted in. If, if you take these verses, you can line them up into three columns that all tell us different things about the word of God. First, there's the column that describes it, names it in different ways, right? Here, verse 7, it's called the law of the Lord, literally the Torah of the Lord or the teaching of the Lord. And this is uh, usually what's used to refer to the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, 
but, but it also has a broader application. It can, it can be more, uh, really, all of God's word in its teaching component. The second word that's used for it in verse 7 is the testimony or witness of God. Well, this is probably, probably referring to God's promises, where he testifies to his character and to what he will do for his people. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord, or the instructions. These are the places in God's word where he teaches us how we ought to live. And then in verse 8 as well, the commandment of the Lord, what God has told us we must and mustn't do. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord. Maybe this is a reference to wisdom literature because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the books of Proverbs and Job and, and others teach us how to live well in the world in light of how God has revealed it to be for us. The rules or judgments of God in verse 9. These are God's decisions that all show his character. So these are the various names of Scripture, of God's Word, that clarify for us God's glory. The second column of this poem is adjectives, words that are used to describe that Word of God, Holy Scripture, the written Word of God. The psalmist David here says the law of the Lord is perfect. Whereas general revelation can leave us with ambiguities, like verse 6 does, God's written law, his Torah, his teaching is perfect. It clarifies those things for us. He says it is sure or reliable or trustworthy. While all the other promises in the world may fail, God's promises, his testimonies, what he witnesses to in his word is trustworthy, able to be trusted and relied upon. It is right the word for right here means basically like a, a straight ruler by which you can measure things and set things straight. I personally get a weird pleasure from walking into a room and seeing all the pictures hung level. And if I see one that's off, now if you come to my house, I'm sure this is really not true because I'm sure there are many of our pictures that are off. But if I see one off, I tend to want to go over and just straighten it a little bit to make sure it's straight. That's the sort of the glory and the joy of a straight rule as God's commands or his, uh, uh, as God's precepts are described here. The commands of God, it says, are pure. Many people's commands are not pure. Many powerful rulers and leaders make commands that are tainted by narcissism, self-interest, and folly. Not so with God's. His commandments are pure. The fear of the Lord is clean, Friends, we worship what we fear most. There are many unclean things, things that we, when we worship them make us unclean. When we make the fear of the Lord our main fear, right? Our, the thing we reverence most in the world, it brings with it no shame. It's a clean fear. God's word is true and righteous altogether. What a picture of perfection. What a picture of the glorious character of God. What, what clarity God's word brings to his glory as his glory is on full display, most full display in his word, in its perfection, trustworthiness, rightness, purity, cleanness, truth, and righteousness. And then the third column is the power of God's word, what it can do. It's amazing here. And he says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And that word for soul is a word that you can translate as self. We think of soul as the the, the, the spiritual, the non-physical component of our being. It's, it's more than that. It's, it's our identity. The fullness of who we are, our very selves. It says the law of God can refresh it, revive it, bring life back to it. 
God's teaching can literally restore our identity and our purpose and meaning in life. And isn't that what everyone out there right now is looking for, is trying to find identity, meaning, purpose? That's in the law of the Lord. It can make wise the simple, able to mature us into wisdom. It rejoices the heart. Don't we want joyful hearts? The psalmist says, yeah, that comes from the word of God and seeing God's glory in his word. It can enlighten our eyes, helping us to see reality more clearly. You may not be able to see it, but I wear contacts, and I have a pretty, pretty high prescription, whatever uh, the case is. Many of you have had that experience, though, where, you know, the, your eyes start going bad, and you look out at the trees, and it's sort of a blurry mess, a haze. Then you go to the eye doctor, you get uh, eyeglasses prescribed or a new contact prescription, and you put them in, and all of a sudden, everything's clear. It's what the Word is. It enlightens the eyes. And then he says it, the fear of the Lord endures forever. When we have a fear of the Lord, when we worship God and Him alone and, and glory in Him, we come into contact with eternity. We're engaged in eternity, eternity itself. Before the Reformation, the word that is so delighted in, in this psalm was largely inaccessible, right? It was only really offered in the context of the church, and usually in Latin, which most people couldn't understand. But then shortly before the Reformation, the printing press was invented, and one of the greatest blessings of that, that was that God's word could be translated into the vernacular, the language of the people, and then printed and disseminated, and that every home could have a copy of God's word in it to read it. And in many ways, that is what, what was the heart and soul of causing the Reformation, of bringing it about. Uh, Martin Luther gives the word uh, this credit when he said in, 19, in 1522, he said, you know, I, op I opposed indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Phillips and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. The power of the word as it brings the clarity of God's glory to us. And this is what it is. Special revelation that more clearly describes to us the glory of God and the wonder of his handiwork. Seeing how the Word of God so clearly displays His glory, it's no wonder that in this part of the poem, David also gives us some illustrations to capture that sense in verse 10. More to be desired are they, the words of God, the Word of God, the precepts, the law, the testimony. More to be desired are they than much gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Simply put, as Alistair Begg said, the word of God's better than money or honey. Why honey? Alistair Begg also says he's not a big fan of honey. He doesn't like sticky things. Well, they didn't have sugar in that day, granulated sugar. It was the main form of sweetness in the ancient uh, Near East. And so if you're going to describe the sweetest thing, you use honey. 
But maybe, maybe for us, uh, in our day, it's something else. Maybe for you, it's sweeter than a fresh-baked Krispy Kreme donut mm. or German chocolate cake. C.S. Lewis uh, also, I don't think, loved the, the honey metaphor. In his commentary uh, on the reflections on the Psalms, he says, you know, if that metaphor does not suit us, who have not such a sweet tooth as all ancient peoples. Like, speak for yourself, C.S. Lewis. But, uh, partly because we have plenty of sugar and we don't uh, long for it as much. He says, let us say it's like mountain water refreshing the body. Like fresh air after a dungeon. Like sanity after a nightmare. The question for us as we apply this second point is, do we delight in the word of God and his special revelation, not only as a place where we learn about God, but where we learn the perfection of his character, the place where we have a trustworthy guide for uprightness, purity, and cleanness as the source of ultimate truth. Have we let it redefine our identity and revive our souls? Have we let it make us wise unto salvation? Have we let it open our eyes and rejoice our hearts? Isn't the Word of God so central to the Reformation? That's what we capture in that other sola, sola scriptura. Scripture alone is the ultimate authority because it is the place where God's glory is most clearly on display. Sadly, I think in our day, you know, while the Reformation really could identify with what David says in verse 10 of the sweetness of God's Word, you know, the Word of God is more accessible to us today than at any other time in the history of humanity. We don't just have it in Bibles, many of which are probably on our shelves, maybe one on our bedside table. We have it on our phones and our computers, even our smart watches, right? And yet, do we give it as much attention as we have access to it? It's interesting that David hones in on money and honey. Aren't those often the things that we sort of accept within the body of Christ as things worth pursuing? Too much. Greed and gluttony. Why don't we delight in it the way David seems to hear in verse 10 as often as we wish? I would suggest that part of it is probably just sheer laziness. At least in my life, I can probably attest to many times when that's true. There's so many distractions in this world, it's much easier to attend to them. But but I think also because God's, the clarity of God's glory as we find it in his word is like a mirror to us. You know, we who are made in his image to reflect his glory and when we see what that glory is to look like reflected in his word, it shines into our lives and we look at ourselves and we're ashamed of how we don't live up to the image of God that he has called us to. We realize that we are well described by Romans 3.23 that says, all have sinned and therefore fall short of the glory of God. And that leads us to our next point. Not only does the glory uh, of God, not only is it communicated in the world, not only is it clarified in in its word, but third and finally, it calls us to respond in worship. And specifically in worship as it begins in confession, continues in prayer, and ends in praise. And isn't that what describes our worship service even here tonight? Confession, prayer, praise. And that's what we see as the psalm goes on. Look at verse 11. Moreover, by them, and that is the the law of God, the, the, the various ways his word is described, by them your servant is warned in keeping them there is great reward. 
Doesn't that set up, it's sort of a transition verse. As the psalmist has looked up to the heavens, as he's looked down to the word, he now looks in to his heart. And he sees that God's word, as it brings the clarity of his glory into his life, both offers great reward, as we're called and encouraged and promised great things in keeping the word of God. But because of our sin, it also offers great warning, a great challenge to us. And so it's not surprising that as David goes on, he has to go on, and he's going to go on in worship, but he has to start his worship with confession. Who can discern his errors, verse 12? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sin. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. The prayer continues. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart reflect the kind of character that I see in your word. May they be acceptable in your sight. And then praise, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The psalm ends with worship. Specifically, prayer, a prayer of confession, supplication, and asking God's help to live according to his word, and then concluding with that note of praise at the end of verse 14, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And the psalm doesn't record God's answer to David's prayer here, does it? It just ends there with verse 14. But that doesn't mean that God hasn't answered. The answer to David's prayer here in Psalm 19 came, came a thousand years after David, 2,000 years ago. Not an audible voice from heaven saying, okay, David, you got it, but in God the Son himself coming down from heaven to be the Word of God incarnate to be the ultimate and final special revelation of God's glory in its fullness, in its clarity, in its glory. Having set aside his rightful glory that Jesus had uh, as God the Son in the Father's presence, he took on flesh and, and kind of like the Son here, he, he became the pinnacle of creation as he took on flesh and lived a holy, righteous life. The one man who could pray this prayer and God could answer it based on his life alone, based on his righteousness and his good works alone. He, he comes uh, to earth like the sun here joyfully, right? Running forth as the light of the world to shine the glory of God into creation. And yet unlike the stars and the moon and even the sun that are eclipsed by the greater clarity and purity of God's revelation in his word, Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God's word as he becomes word incarnate, as John 1 tells us, embodying God's laws in his perfect obedience. So that, as, so that all the glories of God's word that are described here in Psalm 19 ultimately are most fully true of Jesus, who is the very word of God incarnate. He is perfect, reviving the soul. He is perfect, reviving the soul, giving us a new identity as creatures, new creatures in Christ through faith, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He is sure and trustworthy, making wise the simple, bringing us the wisdom of the gospel that is folly to the world, 1 Corinthians 1. He is upright and straight, rejoicing the heart in his rightness 
as he lives the perfect life a man should live. He is pure, enlightening our eyes by showing us what true holiness really looks like. He is clean, and his cleanness endures forever. You know, in the Old Testament, if you were ritually clean, you could very easily become unclean. All you had to do is touch something unclean, and boom, your cleanness is not forever. Jesus' cleanness is forever. He touched lepers, and they were made clean. Jesus is true and altogether righteous as truth incarnate, as he says in John 14, 6. And while on earth he knew this psalm, presumably he sang this psalm. And in singing it, he lived it out, desiring the word more than much fine gold, knowing it as sweeter than honey. Doesn't Jesus show us that? He loved God's word so that at 12 years old, his parents lost him and he said, where else would you find me but in God's house, studying his word? When he's tempted in the wilderness, what does he do? He quotes scripture that he had laid on his heart. When confronted by opponents, he answers, it is written. And when hanging on the cross, he cries out with Psalm 22. And he's the only one who could actually pray this prayer and it'd be possible for God to actually answer it based on what he had done. He was declared innocent from hidden faults. He was kept back from presumptuous sins. They did not have dominion over him. He was truly blameless, innocent of great transgression. And yet, in keeping the law of the Lord for him, he did not receive great reward, but instead took the judgment like the heat of the sun is an image of here. And that wrath of God, like the, the heat of a sun that is inescapable, was poured out on him when he went to the cross and died, not for his sins, but for yours and for mine, who are his through repentance and faith in him. And because Jesus died to pay for our sins and rose for our justification, as scripture says, when we now pray this prayer, he can and does answer it for us. That's what justification is, right? Being declared innocent, even from hidden faults, even when we, when we know them, even when we're the only ones who know them. In Christ, they're forgiven. And God sees us as innocent because our sins have been fully paid for once for all by Jesus and his blood that is more precious than gold. We can be blameless and innocent of great transgression because he has credited to us through faith his righteousness, and Jesus, as the word of God coming to us in the gospel is, friends, isn't he truly sweet, sweeter than honey, the drippings of a honeycomb, as in him we're forgiven, we're made righteous, we're loved more than we could ever imagine, and we're promised a share in his glory, in his kingdom. And only knowing him, having him, his gospel good news as central to all that we do in worship, can worship truly uh, be a place where God's glory is known. And isn't that what the Reformation recovered as well? One of the, the hearts of the Reformation is a recovery of right worship of God. And what was necessary for that is first the doctrine of the gospel and justification by, by grace alone, sola gratia, by faith alone, so, sola fide, and focused on Christ alone, solus Christus. So where the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ saving sinners by grace alone through faith alone is front and center, there God's glory is on fullest display. May we continue to be a church founded around these principles of the Reformation, sola scriptura, 
Scripture alone is the ultimate authority. Sola gratia, by grace alone. Sola fide, through faith alone. Solus Christus, in Christ alone. All soli deo gloria. To God alone be glory. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word from this psalm. We thank you for how it points us to your glory. So, so well communicated in your world, even more so in your word. And what we're called to have present in our midst in Jesus Christ and in our worship. We pray that you'd make us churches faithful to the truths recovered in the Reformation. And that through that we might bring glory to your name as we live our lives uh, in light of your word here on earth. All for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen.